From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you... The Wirecard scandal continues to unfold and UK fintechs get swept up in its wake. Chime launch a credit card as Galileo offers everyone a chance to launch a credit card. And Monza warn their customers about the perils of buying puppies online. Yes, really. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 441 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and wonderful co-host, Mr. David Breer. How are you doing, David? Pretty pretty good. I mean, I'm struggling with what concept of a day it is right now. <laughs> like, uh, I, I think I've gone into that period with remote working where it's just all remote working, if that makes sense. So uh, I can't believe we've done 441 episodes as well. Like, that is amazing. That was the thing when I was reading it. I was like, is it really 441? Shouldn't I be, like, pushing up daisies by now? That's a lot of episodes. <laughs> I mean, we need to start planning for 500. I think, like, when we get to 500, it's going to have to be something crazy big, I think. Yeah, well, I think this could be a vintage one, listeners, because we've got some great guests um, making some welcome returns. Uh, we've got Joe Blomendahl, who's head of strategy at MyTech. How are you doing, Joe? I'm good, thanks very much. Thanks for having us back, Simon. No, thank you for being back. And of course, Natalie Oosterman, who's COO over at Curve. Natalie, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? Really good, thank you. Good to have you back. Of course, you did our FinTech Insider Insights live and um, lots of uh, Wirecard things happening this week. So good to, good to have you uh, joining us more than once. And of course, making a welcome return is the one and only Emily Nicole, tech editor at City AM. Emily, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm really good. I'm excited to get into some fintech news. And there was probably only really one place to start this week, wasn't there? Um, the Wirecard saga continues to unravel. Um, so this was the story on last week's show, and it's the story on this week's show. But it, we've got a lot more for you. So do stick with this one, because it's it's kind of a saga. Like When you just run through the things that have actually happened, it reads like the plot of an incredible movie or Netflix documentary that needs to happen. So just to recount a couple of highlights, and then we'll, we'll talk to some of the fintechs. Um, since a 500 million euro raise between 2011 and 2014, Wirecard has been growing, expanding, acquiring, and gaining all kinds of investor interest. But at the same time, they've been under investigation from the Financial Times, who pointed out a number of flaws in their accounts back in 2015. And yet in 2017, they got a clean audit from EY, which adds to a lot of interest. Um, And of course, in October 2019, the FT then publishes documents indicating that profits at Wirecard units in Dubai and Dublin were fraudulently inflated. um, And those uh, documents provided to EY, in fact, apparently did not exist. On June the 5th, police search Wirecard's offices in 2020, this is, in Munich, uh, as the criminal investigation begins against the CEO and three board members. And of course, on the 18th of June, Wirecard was then supposed to publish their audited results from 2019, but instead declared that 1.9 billion euros was missing. On the 19th of June, the CEO of Wirecard then resigned. On the 22nd of June this year, Wirecard acknowledged a potential accounting fraud, and the CEO is arrested on suspicion of false accounting. On the 26th of June in the United Kingdom, the FCA closed down Wirecard UK after the day before Wirecard had stated that they would file for insolvency. This had a major impact on UK fintechs and their customers. Companies such as Timeit, Soldo, Anamoney, Curve, and many, many more, uh, their customers were unable to move money using their card platforms. So these companies had to face a lot of these challenges um, sort of by themselves. 
themselves with their customers, putting out tweets, DMs, push notifications, and all kinds of stuff. But it was, in fact, on the 29th of June, so just a couple of days ago as we record this, that the FCA announced that Wirecard could resume issuing e-money and providing payment services in the UK. Uh, And that came into power on the 30th of June. So quite the weekend for a lot of fintechs. But um, enough from from me. I'm tired of my own voice. Let's hear from some of the um, companies affected. Um, We'll hear from Nasli from Curve shortly. But we also heard from Dajit Singh, who's Chief Design Officer and Marketing Director and Co-Founder over at Anna Money. Let's hear from him now. The first thing to say is that the FCA decision was a complete surprise to us. We've been in communication with Wirecard in the UK and there was no sign of this coming. Obviously, it was particularly bad timing for our customers. We're all small businesses. It was the end of the month, so payday, with lots of invoices being issued. And once we had a clearer picture of what was happening, we did a live Q&A with our founders, Boris and Edward, who answered questions, reassured people and provided a timeline of what we were doing on a Sunday. Most importantly, we quickly got our shareholders to agree to cover customer liquidity in the short term, in case the FCA investigation was going to drag on. We're obviously relieved and pleased it was resolved fairly quickly, and we hope it hasn't eroded trust in e-money and the fintech industry. So what are we doing now? We've got a big announcement coming on Friday where we'll map out some of our future plans We want to be seen as the safest e-money product in the market for small businesses. Part of this is putting in measures to be even more transparent. So we'll be publishing our service response times live on our website and communicating our roadmap to our customers on a more regular basis. So quite an eventful week that really tested us. But I think we've come out stronger. We've learned a lot. And many of our customers applauded us for being quick and constant with our communication. That was, of course, uh, Dajit Singh at Anna Money. So thank you, Dajit. Uh, it sounds like he had quite the weekend. And Natalie, uh, it sounds like you had quite the weekend as well. You joined us on our live show about this topic yesterday. But can you recap your own personal experience from the weekend? Sure. Uh, so similarly to Anna, we, well, and all the fintechs uh, and players in the UK market, everyone was taken by surprise on Friday morning uh, when the FCA uh Uh, gave us individual calls, or at least we got individual calls, uh, saying that our services would be down by noon that day, uh, because uh, all of the uh, transactions would be suspended going through Wirecard. Um, That's not the kind of news you want to hear. And um, we had no idea when it might be lifted. And our our fears were the worst at Curve. Uh, We didn't know if it would ever if Wirecard would ever be able to resume. Now, Curve is a, um, is a consumer proposition. It is also a small business, but mainly consumer proposition. Uh, and Curve is a platform. Uh, so uh, the way that we work is uh, the money flows through from your bank when you make, when you make the transaction. So it's not, not a prepaid product. Uh, it doesn't sit. Uh, you don't load up some money. And so it's a little bit different from some of the other consumer-facing um, propositions that actually had uh, money sitting uh, in their e-money account and couldn't be drawn from it. But it didn't matter because our cards still couldn't be used. Now, thankfully, on the card side, as part of our planned growth strategy, we'd already started the transition away from Wirecard and had announced it to all of our customers. 
So we were already bringing the core issuing process in house. Um, but, uh, what, that was only half of the story. Uh, and, and by the way, we were, you know, we were working, we were fast tracking to do that. It was supposed to be done on the, on the 28th. Uh, most people didn't know, but we were a little bit delayed. Um, so we had a few hours to do that more quickly than we had anticipated, but that was only half of the story. Cause, uh, in addition to being our issuing partner, a wire card was also our acquiring partner. That's how we flow things through so quickly. We become the merchant as well. So they processed all our, our card payments. Uh, so even if we got the issuing moved over, we would have still been stuck. So on Friday, we knew we had to move everything away from, well, we decided we needed to move everything away from Wirecard because otherwise we might not be up and running uh, again for our customers and also for our partners. Um, so we moved the, we, what we had to do was, find a new global acquiring partner, right? We had to, we had already started looking around because we have our US expansion. So we had an idea who was out there and what what uh, the players could do, but we had to pick one. We had to negotiate a deal. We had to sign a deal and implement it. And our, our, um, our goal was to do it by Sunday night. Um, so that's, that's uh, what we started to do. Um, we picked checkout.com. Uh, and so basically by 9.30 on Sunday night, after an incredibly hectic uh, <laughs> weekend, so it was, you know, about 60 hours later, we'd brought our issuing in-house through MasterCard and GPS. We'd sourced, signed, and integrated a, a new acquiring partner, and that was Checkout.com. We'd also set up new settlement and safeguarding accounts with Investec, tested all our cards and tokenized them with our engineers and basically got everything up and running. Um, we talked a little bit about the comms. We also had a comms strategy going forward th from that Friday onwards, letting our customers know what we were doing, how we were doing, uh, and taking them through every step of the way. And we actually haven't stopped that uh, because we're still on a roll given that we've had to rebuild everything. Uh, we're even today rebuilding our refunds um, because that's not completely up and running since some of the money is with, uh, still with wire cards. So we're still figuring that out. Uh, but we've redesigned that. So pretty much on a roll, uh, if I should, if I could say. <laughs> Sounds like quite the weekend. Um, I bet your phone must have been buzzing, buzzing off the hook for, for the whole time. It wasn't time. my phone so much as, uh, we were having Google Hangout meetings. I mean, it was extraordinary how many that, you know, how many meetings we were having in Slack it, on fire, on fire. Right. Absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, well done for getting through it. I think from from all of us, I think these times are extremely hard. Um, I, Emily, I wanted to throw it to you. I mean, what were your first reactions when you saw all of this unfolding? I mean, actually, I wasn't that surprised <laughs> um, because obviously, as a journalist, we've been following this story with Wirecard for a while now. Dan McCrum at the FT, pretty much his sole job was unraveling this story. Um, so the fact that something that big happened, I mean, obviously it must have been really great for him to know that, oh yeah, here's my, here's my relief that I, have, I haven't been lying this whole time. Um, despite the amount of lawsuits he's probably received over the years. Um, and obviously it's not great for the company and it's put a lot of other businesses at risk because they rely on something like Wirecard just to manage their day-to-day -day activities. Um, and I know that at least at City AM, we have one reporter now who has pretty much been covering Wirecard as her patch. And every day it's like, oh, well, I'm on Wirecard watch. This is what I'm going to do today. And every day there's a new element to it. So 
it's been a really interesting time as a journalist to be watching it. I can really imagine it's been been kind of interesting to watch. I, I guess, Joe, you're in sort of a, a in a different position in that you're sort of in the industry. You work with a lot of both the the banks and the fintechs as well in this space. Um, what, what were your thoughts when you saw it? I mean, this has been obviously a story for quite some time, um, but there's been a lot of people going through a lot of stuff this weekend. Yeah, so there's two angles. First, hearing about <clears throat> about the crash of Wirecard, that was unbelievable. Remember, they were larger than Deutsche Bank at, at some point, uh, not too long ago. Uh, so unbelievable that that would come crashing down. Uh, again, like Emily said, there's been more of these stories. And then things that are happening over the weekend, Anna Money is one of our clients and hearing directly from them how hard this is to overcome and how impressive it is really when they do. I mean, what you've just summed up, Natalie, is impressive in itself, but doing it in one weekend. I mean, I was just going to share that recording with our product team and see <laughs> it can be done. We'll you can you. do stuff in a weekend. Um, so I think um, I think we've seen quite a bit of ripple on effect in our in our client group, and also with larger clients. Some of the big banks here in Holland have been affected as well, or will be affected quite soon as well. Wow, yeah. I mean, David, there's there's lots of different actors in this, uh, lots of different roles. Of course, Wirecard UK, Wirecard Solutions is different to uh, Wirecard AG. Wirecard Solutions in the UK is the old, I think, is it um, Newcastle Building Society? Um, and I think, Natalie, when, when we spoke to a few folks yesterday, um, they were sort of very complimentary of Wirecard UK, very complimentary of MasterCard. Um, but uh, is there a bad guy in this, David? And, and what do you think, you know, how's this going to come out in the wash? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to say at this stage, isn't it? I mean, I think we're um, this is the season one cliffhanger that we've kind of got to at this stage, I guess, in terms of uh, people kind of getting up and running again. But um, I mean, clearly, it's Enron sort of proportions of of sort of shenanigans in the back office, isn't it? Which uh, is going to be really interesting to see how that all kind of unravels. I mean, I, I, the thing that sort of jumped out to me is, I mean, obviously, there's been you know, reasonably significant wrongdoing gone to make 1.9 billion uh, magically appear on a on a balance sheet and then disappear. But the thing that I, I really just don't, I, I, I think obviously the fallout of that is going to be significant. But the fact that EY have been, you know, lied to for 10 years to have a balance sheet that they've basically been signing off. And actually, to your point, Emily, with all of the, this isn't like it came out of nowhere. There has been, you know, ongoing rumblings of uh, of kind of wrongdoing for a long time. And you would have thought that actually that would have prompted a much more significant investigation from a from an auditor's perspective somewhere along those 10 years of, uh, of, of, of kind of issues. So, I mean, again, I, I think the impact of this is going to be very significant. I, I hope it doesn't affect the the sort of public perception when it comes to bank as a service or critical infrastructure being you know held by uh you know more new age companies but undoubtedly i think it will require a, a bit of an investigation from the the regulatory side of things to 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 understand that but definitely then the the ramifications and the repercussions for people like ey i think is going to be very significant that's really good point, David. I think the the role that Wirecard has played in the UK. I mean, Emily, uh, they've been instrumental in in a lot of startups' growth. Do you think that um, there's it's going to be harder to build a fintech? Is it going to be harder to be a small company if there are some some repercussions here? And and how do you reflect on David's comments more broadly? I mean, ultimately, yeah, the removal of a player like Wirecard from the system will mean that for those fintech startups that are just starting out, you don't have that go to anymore 
But as um, Natalie described earlier, they've chosen a new partner. There are partners out there that can do the different parts of the system. And so hopefully it will make the market a bit more competitive. Um, maybe startups will realise they have more choices than, than others because we've all heard before, aside from the fraud, Wirecard had other problems being a payments processor. Um, frequent outages and all the rest, which is why a lot of the bigger banks like Monzo and Starling moved away from them and made their own versions of in-house technology. Y-Curve was doing that already. Um, and like reacting to David's points as well, I think you, you asked earlier, Simon, about who do we think the bad guy is going to be? And I actually think as, as the weeks go on, less of the focus is going to be on who did what at Wirecard and who was responsible for what and how... EY and the regulators missed this. Even today, we've had the German regulator having to defend themselves. Well, not so sorry. Even last week, we had um, the German regulator having to defend themselves in, um, in Munich in the Parliament um, as to why they didn't spot this and what what's their responsibility here. And I think that's where the the general. If, you, if we look at back visit in ten years' time, that's where we're going to be like, okay, so there was some real serious oversight in the regime, and something has to change there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, the regulator will go off the back of the audit that is conducted and the, you know, the, the credibility of the audit there as well. I mean, I know we've had quite a few calls, I think, in in the last sort of four or five years about the, the, the sort of um, role in which the big four play when it comes to the the um, auditing of accounts and the responsibility that sits with those things. And, and actually, I mean, you know, you don't want any firm to... Um, you know, to suffer. But I mean, actually, when Enron happened, Arthur Anderson basically ceased to almost to, to exist, right? So, and they were the guys who were saying, this is all fine and don't worry about it. I mean, I, I hope EY don't go that way. And I think there's such a big organization that it's unlikely that that will be happening. But these are brands that are based on the credibility of the work that they do and that they stand by. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this sort of taints the the next five or 10 years of their ability to provide that type of evidence. And and definitely, I mean, I, I would be, you know, once bitten, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, actually people are going to be a lot more wary of um, taking their word for it going forward. Indeed. And I think, David, um, a lot of the worries that the FCA had was about the underlying liquidity. Like, was the cash there? Were these fintechs good for it? Was the money sitting in an account somewhere? And how do you how do you prove that? And Natalie, I think there's um, something to be said for, you know, a lot of organizations had some nuances with that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Listen, I, you know, just to carry on, on on the thread, this is about a few bad actors and the checks and balances not being in place as they should have been. I think everybody's going to be reevaluating that. Unfortunately, it's a shame that we're reevaluating something again and again. Um, you know, I think of Madoff, I think of Enron, I'm thinking now of Wirecard. History is repeating itself. So something has to be done. However, the thought that came through my mind is we all know in this industry that payments is a very big web of multiple um, partners collaborating together on di- different pieces of the puzzle. So the challenge for those who are auditing us, and they should, uh, and regulating us, is uh, being able to untangle that and make sure that that's working correctly. So um, I don't mind if there are more stringent rules. Just don't hamper the innovation that uh, we are trying to do. Um, but otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll put the systems in place for those checks and balances as, as required. So it's a little bit shocking that uh, it wasn't found. Um, 
I would also agree that we had uh, we knew that the two entities in the UK and in Germany were separate. I am going to assume that the uh, decisions made by the FCA were, you know, based on very legitimate concerns that there was going to be a problem uh, with the safeguarded accounts and the funds and the e-money. Um, and I'm really glad that they were able to do that. I do know that the Wirecard employees were working hard in the UK to give the FCA what they required. So, you know, my hearts go out to all of those employees who were good actors within Wirecard because for many years they did build a great company that they really believed in. So, you know, I, I feel bad for a lot of them because they are really wonderful people and they were great partners to us. Yeah, it's, it is it is interesting to almost, if you think of the scale of this, like I say, there are, there's so many good people at, at Wirecard in, in all different guises. The scale of this deception um, must have taken, I mean, it's not just the CEO, right? You know, this is the CFO but it must have been a lot of people in finance. It must have been a lot of people on the strategy side of things. And I, and I guess to, to your point, my, my concern when this first broke was that actually, to your point, that it, that it was the entirety of the safeguard amount that they were basically deciding actually was a you know was dead money and therefore to use that to invest in, which obviously completely defeats the point of the safeguarding. But so and I, and I don't think we I don't think we've quite seen exactly what's transpired yet. But um, given the FCA have um, you know seen enough to you know um, sort of almost uh, release some of those restrictions, then clearly they're starting to see something that gives them a little bit of hope that there's there's still a, uh, an element of protection there essentially. But uh, Simon, as you say, I think this is uh, this is going to run and run and run, isn't it? David, the, that period of time, as you were saying earlier, uh, from the 18th of June to the 26th of June, uh, must have been crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird because like the tone of that changed so dramatically, didn't it? From a ooh, we think we've been hacked and the money's disappeared to somewhere. And then there was all of this swirling of like, where's the money gone? To, to oh no, the money never existed in the first place. So like, you know, the the investigation that happened internally over that period must have been, must have been pretty terrifying. So um, I know we've said this a few times. I know we've said it last, uh, last episode on the show as well, but um, the sooner Netflix get a hold of exactly what happens, the better we'll all be informed with the, uh, the inevitable documentary that comes out, right? So yeah. There'll be a fire festival. Sort of, there'll be two documentaries on different platforms. I think that that's bidding war has already started. I mean, I think it's Target King. You know, I mean, like we we yeah. need we need some really sort of extravagant, elaborate kind of characters in based in this one, and maybe some large animals. And then I think it's going to be it's going to be the documentary of the century, isn't it? Indeed. Um, Joe, I just want to come back to you for a second. You mentioned briefly that um, there may be some repercussions in the Dutch market. Do you want to just give some some color to that? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> I was um, reading that the um, uh, Wirecard had a credit facility with, uh, I think, a conglomerate of 15 banks or something across the globe, uh, giving them access to 1.7 billion. And a couple of the larger Dutch banks are in there as well. Uh, two of them have 200 million at risk at the moment now as well. Um, and then and then they get into this playing field of, do we want that back immediately? Uh, the German uh, the Baffin thinks differently about that. Uh, the Dutch banks want to not do that and see how much they can recoup if Wirecard uh, continues to exist, obviously, and continues to um, generate money. So you can see the large banks there having um, uh, having their uh, risks set in, into the Wirecard story as well. 
so much risk sort of all over the system. I, I think, uh, Natalie, as you step uh, back from this and reflect on the last week you've had, um, what are the biggest lessons that, that you think the industry and fintech is learning? Do you, and do you think that there's a risk that um, fintech's been tarnished in the eyes of customers? A lot of people have been saying that, uh, uh, oh, well, now people will lose trust in fintech and fintechs go down and they're not as stable as the big banks. Do you think that's realistic? And, and what are your key lessons? Maybe I'm biased because I'm watching tweets where they're linking Imagine Curve. I don't know, but um, you know, I've been keeping a close eye. Uh, I, you know, was, had a great, very tight, small team working um, on the communications. You know, when we started Friday morning, it was uh, we were just thinking this is a PR disaster. <laughs> like we're we're telling our customers we were closing accounts, so we don't know when they're going to happen um, and when they're going to be able to access their funds. And um, I think, if anything, we've been able to show, along with, uh, you know, also some of the other fintechs, uh, that fintech is incredibly resourceful and resilient, that we're able to inform our customers in a way that's very simple and clear what we're doing, how we're doing it in very small language, which I don't think we would see from other players in the financial services as quickly as we did that we reacted to messages that are coming through almost instantaneously um, and, and that we, you know, we helped to give people at the end some comfort in, in that they were able to do things. If anything, what I did see over the weekend was uh, from a, and, and, you know, we can talk about it from a journalistic point of view, the questions about the FCA and what they did from a from a customer customer detriment point of view, because there were a lot of people who were vulnerable who needed money, and those accounts were locked up. Now, it was probably done for a very very good reason. I get that, uh, but that was the that was the issue is that people just couldn't get their funds. So, um, I right now we're feeling really good. So. <laughs> It's interesting how fintech has this community around it and this different way of communicating. Emily, we've talked about that before when fintechs have had outages. As you sort of look at this as a dispassionate observer, where do you stand? Is it more fintechs have been through something and their customers are with them on it? Um, Or does this just play to the biases people already had? Like if you didn't like fintechs, this is why you shouldn't like them and so on. I mean, I'm probably not the most unbiased observer given that I am a fintech journalist and I have accounts with pretty much everyone at this point um but I'd like to think it's the former I'd like to think that at least from my perspective when you sign up to an account with a fintech firm especially one that's a bit smaller like Anna Money or Soldo rather than choosing someone like Monzo or Starling or Revolut you you know that you might have to expect something like this like a hiccup which is why in the beginning as well, a lot of us, when you opened bank, bank accounts with digital banks, you kind of kept your legacy bank account on the side. Um, and so I think hopefully a lot of people who were using these platforms would, would have been able to at least have some kind of backup. But as Natalie mentioned, there are plenty of vulnerable people who turn to platforms like Soldo, like Anna, because they are easy, easily more accessible, um, because they may have struggled getting an account with someone like Santander or Barclays. Um, and especially those who rely on branches as well. Um, in, an, in an era like coronavirus, you definitely wanted to be able to go more digital. And I expect account signups have boomed during coronavirus for that reason. So the fact that this all went down for them was pretty upsetting. But Indeed. Um, final word, Joe, before we move on. Yeah, I think, I mean, <clears throat> being close to Anna Money, um, yes, this is this is. Uh, 
the, the fintechs will take a blow. But given the fact that they are fintechs, they are so close to their customers, and has built a great rapport with their customer base, allows them to communicate really shortly and quickly, like Natalie says, and, and, and it doesn't erode the trust as quickly as it potentially would do with, with a traditional bank. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not too concerned that this will blow out the fintech industry. Interesting. The difference between bland PR speak that you can't get hit for and the uh, sort of um, more direct communications. Listen, to find out even more about this story, we did a whole insight show on LinkedIn where we dug into detail uh, with those, with a number of companies affected. So alongside Natalie, we also had Darren Upton from Soldo and Simon England from Equals. Uh, you can watch it back on the 11FS YouTube or any of our 11FS social channels. Uh, all right, we'll be back very shortly. Let's take a quick break and tell you a little bit about one of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.co.uk. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and, of course, costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. Okay, now back to the news show where we're going to take a look at some of the other news from around the world, David, if you're ready for this. Starting off with some good bank-as-a-service news, despite the Wirecard saga, um, banking platform Solaris Bank has raised $67.5 million US dollars at a $360 million valuation. So, uh, of course, they are a German fintech startup, and this is their Series C. They offer financial services to other fintech companies through a set of APIs, and they do uh, allow you to build fintech startups and leverage their line of products to do a lot of the back-end heavy lifting integration to rails they also have their own banking license um, and it's an infrastructure in the sort of the banking space their clients include challenger banks such as tomorrow bank incher uh, vivid money penta uh, contest and many more so with a total of more than four hundred thousand individual accounts and clients in the future solaris bank plans to make its portfolio of financial services even more uh, broad by introducing local ibans uh, or uh, international bank identification numbers uh, in the most important European markets. This same week, Solaris also announced a partnership with Amex, who will use their split pay feature to allow German customers to pay off their balances. Um, let's also mention as well in this week, uh, Lavaris also raised um, around about 100 million, David. David, this um, sort of bank as a service space has been really, really hot for a while. What did you think when you saw this? Yeah, it's super interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, again, off the back of everything that we've just been discussing, then it's good to see, you know, the real sort of backbone of uh, financial services, people having a good go at that, isn't it? And I mean, Solaris Bank have been around for a little while, haven't they? And it feels like the, particularly in the German market right now, it really feels like there's an opportunity for those guys to to really be that platform for new fintechs, new players really sort of coming to the market. I mean, it's interesting really off the back of everything that Thought Machine have been doing and like say Lavaris who have been around for for quite a long time are really getting traction now and, and investment. So it uh, feels like the, uh, you know, fun and uh, frolics to have in core banking are, are really heating up, which is good. 
Yeah, and this bank as a service space, I think, uh, Natalie, is, is often quite confusing for people because there's different people that do different jobs. It seems like Solaris is a bit of an all-in-one-stop shop versus in the UK where you'd have had Wirecard and GPS and, and potentially several others in there with a bank behind the scenes. Uh, do you think this all-in-one-stop shop is, is compelling for those in Germany? And, and what do you think of um, the, these moves by Solaris? Uh, I mean, in Germany, I would say... Uh, Banks are, are probably some of the banks. There's a lot of banks in Germany. Let me start by saying that. Uh, uh, probably might be interested, and there's some challengers that are coming into the uh, space that might be interested in, in having the one-stop shop. Um, obviously, here in the UK, we kind of have our bits and pieces, and there's more specificity and, um, and, and focus on the parts that they do. Uh, you know, the, the the installments part that they're doing is very interesting. That's how Germans pay. So I think that really fits into uh, what Amex is looking to to mimic. Um, so I think there's definitely some some potential there. I think there's probably more potential in the U.S. If I'm honest, um, those infrastructures there are really lagging, uh, and I think could could do with a, a makeover. <laughs> I think for for Solaris, as you say, the the places where it's actually particularly difficult to get over, you know, hold of licenses is is really really interesting. But um, and like you say, different players sort of operate at different levels in the stack, don't they, Simon? So, uh, but I, but I think it's a. I mean, if I was you know Fiserv or Temenos or you know FIS at this stage, seeing you know four or five players really having a good crack at uh, really sort of disrupting. Forty billion pound companies, then uh, then actually that's a that's a sign that they really need to up the game when it comes to the product development side of things. Indeed, and and of course, Emily, in the US, there's companies like Galileo and Marketa and Q2. They're sort of coming out of the woodwork. There's Deserve.com, who's a really exciting one in in the credit card space. Um, do you think this sort of new intermediary between the sort of smaller banks and and uh, the sort of this bank as a service space in Europe, we have Rails Bank as well, of course, in the UK. Do you think there's going to be more of these? Is, is that ripe for consolidation? And, and how do you see that space more broadly? I think it's great, again, for those fintech startups that are starting out, because especially in the beginning, things like in-house tech are very expensive and time intensive. And right now, time to market is really, really important if you're going to get ahead. Um, because there's so many bigger players in fintech now that you have to compete with. It's harder to break into it. But then I do think that something like Wirecard has shown it's probably never going to go away that once you reach a certain size, you've got to start thinking about developing your own tech in-house. You can't be relying on others to provide those services for you. And so eventually it, it might start to hurt players like Solaris and Rails Bank and the rest. It's it's interesting, as you say, it's it's like different players. I mean, we always talk about the banking battlefield and the different people that are on that banking battlefield, different organizations kind of coming into financial services. I mean, we found with Foundry, people who are outside of financial services who really want to get into the, you know, the banking space and bring banking like services to their already happy consumer base. Actually, they just want all of that stuff taken care of. They don't really, I mean, not that they don't care. There's obviously sort of regulatory side of things that they need to kind of adhere to. But but what they're really looking to do is just get into banking without having to get into banking, which I think is a, you know, it's why people like you know the uh, the apples of the world have worked with Goldman Sachs, or the you know um, Google's have worked with Cities. You know, it's inching people into you know banking isn't just for banks anymore, is it? 
Absolutely. And, and it, you probably saw that Galileo announced their Galileo Instant product, which for $1,000, you can get a card program up and running and then $5 a card. I mean, Joe, uh, APIs uh, have been huge for developers with Stripe and Checkout.com and others. Do you think that this is something that we can learn from and can be used by big banks? And as David said, will it draw other people into financial services like um, non-banks? Yes, and the other way around, you know, APIs will draw banking into other spaces as well and closer to my world, identity and identity issuing and things like that. So I think that <clears throat> definitely it also, um, the whole uh, Wirecard situation we're talking about just now does demonstrate how interlocked we are getting and that's driven by the API economy and uh, it will bring some of the risks uh, that Emily talked about to, to the table. But ultimately, I think it'll bring more choice and more customization to, to, to you and me as a, as a consumer. Absolutely. Well, that's all the time we've got for this story. But speaking of people who launch on banks to service, we're talking about uh, US challenger bank Chime uh, launching a credit builder, a credit card that works a bit more like a debit card. And this story comes from TechCrunch. And uh, this card is designed to help consumers build their credit history by way of everyday transactions. So the card uh, feels more like a debit card, but it's tied to how much cash is in the user's bank account. Rather than a traditional card that can allow for overspending, uh, because in a 2015 survey, Chime found that 67% of quote-unquote millennials prefer debit cards, which they feel are more secure and less likely to get them into debt. However, relying on debit cards alone means younger consumers aren't building up a credit history, a decision that may come to haunt them later on when they're looking to finance a house, for instance. In 2018, Chime acquired the credit score improvement service Pinch, which had focus on helping young adults build better credit. Chime says it took learnings from Pinch and tapped into the team's expertise in the creation of this credit builder. Uh, Chime's been built beta testing even the credit builder since June 2019, and the service has grown to over 200,000 enrollees. Um, during the test period, credit builders also help users increase their credit score by an average of 30 points and help 95% of members with no credit history establish a credit score for the first time. Absolutely incredible. But to find out more, we heard from Michael Ducker, who's co-founder of Pinch, and he's also the director of product at Chime and led the credit builder development launch. Let's hear from him now. My name is Michael Ducker, and I'm a director of product at Chime, and I lead our credit builder product. Chime's mission is to help Americans achieve financial peace of mind, and many of our members are younger and haven't established credit scores yet. This is something I discovered early on at Pinch. When we joined the Chime team, we took the learnings from rental payment reporting and brought it together with Chime's payment expertise to invent a completely new accessible financial product that would allow our members to build credit safely and work with all three credit bureaus. We're super excited about the positive impact we're making in this area. Members have seen an average of a 30-point increase in their credit score. And for those looking to establish credit for the first time, 95% of members without a credit score were able to get one. Thank you very much to Michael. I mean, Joe, I'm going to come to you first. Do you think it's a good move to help people build credit ratings and, and products like this? Yeah, being Dutch... Um we don't work in a credit society at all. Um, so it's to, to, I mean, it doesn't feel like a, a new way of working. So I can see, and then thinking about the Solaris story just now, the Germans being more interested in credit, uh, like the Dutch wouldn't be interested in credit, feels like the world's spot sort of tilting a little bit. So there's more debit activity in the, in the, uh, on the US side and then and potentially here in Holland and more conservative countries like Holland and Germany were getting a bit more used to credit. So absolutely, I think it's, um, it's healthy both ways. 
Indeed. Um, so this actually followed the launch yesterday of uh, the debut of Apple Card's PATH program, which helps tackle the issue of young people who can't qualify for credit. David, do you think that um, there's things big banks can learn from this? Do you think big techs will be doing it more? What, what are your thoughts on credit building generally? Um, I, I mean, credit building in areas where it's because people have had bad credit or you're trying to, I mean, we've seen, obviously, there's there's areas of the, the world where you can't pick up and actually accurately uh, get a risk profile for people. And and credit building at that sense sort of makes sense. But I, I sort of feel like the idea of by learning how to deal with debt, you have to get into a little bit of debt frequently. It's like, um, you know, the idea of the idea to get over an allergy, uh, um, uh, uh, an allergy is to have a little bit of the thing. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of there's something that doesn't quite work for me in in the way in which this is, uh, this is sort of set up. Can, type can I so, speak as the American in the crowd? Sure. <laughs> I, I, I wear my French hat when I need the French stuff and, and my American hat when I need to be American. But um, building your credit in America is a part of the American dream. It's how you get your mortgage for your house, right? So I remember when I was young and starting to build my credit history, um, and uh, I, I made sure to uh, get a credit card and to show that I could pay it off. It doesn't mean you're going to go into debt. It just means that you're showing that you can make regular payments on your with your own will, so to speak, right? Rather than it being decided for you by coming out of your account. And, you know, I think this is a brilliant, uh, by the way, it's an ex-Amex uh, colleague that uh, is part of Chime, but um, it's a brilliant proposition, this one, because the North Star is so clear. But the question that comes to my mind is you are dealing in a world of, of young, um, well, it's not just young people, but people who are trying to build a credit and they want things. And in America, you want things and you want them now. So are they going to build, are they going to use the Chime product just to pay things off just to build that credit history? And then are they going to put, are they going to use another credit card to rack up, you know, some, some of that debt so they can get the things that they want now, now, now? I yeah, wonder. this is this is my this is my good credit card, yeah. and this is my bad credit card. Yeah, it's, uh, it so, does lead to a, share, a sort of a twin life, doesn't it? Which is yeah, I, but I think it's a. I mean, you know, wow, what a great value proposition, and how very well defined that is, and I'm sure it's going to do well. Yeah, so we had um, episode four three six was um, the U.S. underbanked episode. We had John Hope Bryant and a number of amazing guests on that show. Um, and uh, one of the things that John Hope Bryant said on that show that really stuck with me, which is um, you're not seeing riots in 700 credit score neighborhoods, and the impact that credit score has in the U.S. is absolutely phenomenal to your outcomes in life. And that's uh, that's really really stuck with me of how important this product is for people for their social mobility, for their careers, for their futures so you know credit to uh ironically to chime for doing this um but also it made me credit wonder, to chime come on that's that's gotta be yeah, the title of this episode <laughs> <laughs> credit to you guys um but I, I sort of wonder, Emily, like, A, what do you think? But B, how are they ever going to make any money? I mean, this is really good social good, but it sort of feels a bit charitable. Will they ever make money or, or is that something in the future? So, yeah, I mean, your point about my thoughts on it is that I do think it's quite good, especially as somebody who is technically a millennial. Um, I think the idea, I'm obviously a UK citizen, but the idea of a credit score is something that not a lot of us get taught about properly. And especially if you're thinking about, um, people who come from lower social social mobility backgrounds 
where credit score is really important for them, it's good to have a product that kind of does it without you having to think about it too much. It does it in a way that is building your credit score, but you can't really get into too much trouble because it still has this whole debit card feel to it. And that's what a lot of different startups in the UK are trying to do with different aspects. People like Credit Ladder helping you to use your rent payments to, to account towards your credit score and everything like that. So I think it's great for that reason. But you bring up a very good point that there's not necessarily a source of revenue attached to any of this. Because whereas in the UK, we've kind of got an idea of how digital banks can become revenue building that once they've got enough deposits and they can start doing lending. But in the US, where everything is so credit based, it must be a lot harder to really find a way through that. And Chime must have something else up their sleeve to go along with this. Maybe it's additional products that they're going to sell with it um, because this isn't really going to earn them any money. Well, and, and to that point, right, and actually, uh, Natalie, to your, to your point, it's like this is training ground territory for getting people fighting fit for some, like, big boy and girl debt, right? So, uh, you know, maybe this gives us a bit of a, an inkling into where Chime's roadmap goes to, where how are they going to make really profitable customers in the future? Well, actually, maybe they're de-risking their roadmap in five years or four years or three years' time when they come out with a mortgage product or a you know, a, a bigger credit product where they've, they've actually created captive audience and they've created a, a very loyal group of consumers. So this might become a, a very, you know, amazing strategic play. It could be a masterstroke. Let's let's see if that's the case. And speaking of training, as you say, David, I wonder if they're training um, credit algorithms as well as they're learning about everyday spend and as they're they're putting all of that together. Because credit um, scoring in a in a traditional bank looks quite different and quite manual to to what you can do with open banking and Plaid and many many others. Um, Joe, uh, last thoughts on this before we we move on. Uh, any any reflections on uh, maybe what we can do with data and and, and potentially risks of things like this? Yeah, to your point, I mean, I think that that's so true. Use much more real-time information flowing through the system, so they'll be able to use that. Uh, and then I believe David made made a good point there as well. That gives them some some idea of of the direction that they could move into to to, to twist the company into more profitable uh, solutions. So I think um, I think that's 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 very true. Mark it down here, folks. David said it on episode 441. If it happens in three years, you know where it was. <laughs> you can give Chime some credit and you can give David some credit uh, for, for calling the shot. Uh, that, that does, that's also a different episode. Uh, title, I mean, come on. I say a lot of things. At least one of them's got to come true every so often, hasn't it? So. <laughs> Indeed. We need to like write all the things David says and predicts down. David's predictions. There's a blog post. Uh, Alrighty. Next story comes from IBI Intelligence. And this is about Galileo launching Galileo Instant, which I... Uh, accidentally foreshadowed earlier about creating a branded debit card and digital banking experiences. So um, this is a continued expansion in this bank as a service theme that we've really had in this episode. Um, they've removed a lot of the complexity around card issuing and streamlining the process of payment networks, sponsor bank, card design, manufacture, fulfillment, uh, app design, third party support, etc. Um, and they've done this by packaging it into this instant product, which I think, as I mentioned, was uh, sort of $1,000 to get started and then $5 a card. Uh, you might recognize the name because earlier in the year, the company was acquired by SoFi for $1.2 billion. Um, and Galileo was founded way back in 2000. But it is one of these sort of API-first payments platforms that's able to do incredible fraud detection and decision-making analytics in the auth stream because they've built their own stack. Um, and there's some really impressive stuff that they put out on, on YouTube uh, along those lines. But 
you know, people using Galileo and not just fintechs and challenger banks, it's content creators, it's gig employees, it's, um, yes, startups and fintechs, but it's people like DoorDash and Instacart. They have a whole network of, of big techs using them, and it's changed who's bringing products to market and what products they're bringing to market. So um, why do you think it's going to be so important to brands generally to be able to work with these bankers as service providers in, in the future? I mean, Natalie, you're kind of working on both the issuer and the acquiring side. Do you think that that's going to be the case? And do you think that um, differentiated features are getting harder and harder as people are commoditizing the, the space a little bit? Yeah, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking if you're Uber, do you want to start issuing cards to your you know, drivers or something. I, I don't know. I don't know if the gig economy would be big for this. Uh, what I, I do know on, you know, what we're, what's on our roadmap is being able to, for our small businesses to be able to issue some ca cards off to their employees. So we would be doing that. If we're thinking of doing that, uh, then why wouldn't others want to do it as well? So there could be a market for this. Um, you know, the other thought I have is it gives a lot of um, ideas the chance to start to bloom. But then, you know, then that's, you know, that's great. I think it just opens it up for people being able to try things. Indeed, it does. Um, and, and I think that wave of innovation we saw with Wirecard could, could be there as well. I mean, uh, Emily, do you think that um, there's potential for developers to pick this thing up and you know, sort of a bit like how Shopify changed the game in, in sort of creating a store? Will we see more small things or will we see bigger companies getting more out of this over the long term? Where do you think that balance lays? I mean, I, it kind of harks back to my original point about how a lot of companies eventually are going to want to take their things in-house. And so maybe this is going to be a great product for them because, yes, somebody else is making the card, but it means they're offering their own version of a card rather than using another kind of company to give their employees credit cards. But it all reminds me of back when I was younger and you used to be able to buy, like, you used to be able to get store cards for different places. I know I had, like, a Topshop credit card that... I only really used because I got some reward points. I'm pretty sure it's defunct now. It's still an open account somehow, but I don't I don't use it at all. I don't even think they accept it. And that was a whole fad that has since died out. So I'm not sure. Like, I don't really see it catching on in that sense. Like, why you wouldn't just go to a, a company that does this for you. They have that gen that has their own cards that you can use rather than creating a bes needing to spend money to make a bespoke one that you can then offer your employees with your name on it. Yeah, I think this one was um, the example of like Uber wanted to be able to and, and Lyft use, use services like this. Um, I think they partnered with different people to be able to allow their gig economy drivers to cash out in real time. So it's you drive and then you've got the money immediately. So that it's actually solving different problems because they're getting API access to the underlying infrastructure and, and doing doing new things. But David, I, I want to come back to that that other point um, that sort of I think Natalie may raised and Emily raised, which is this sort of displacement of these bankers as service providers once things hit a certain scale, does that mean they're sort of limited in how far they can go and that they're, they're going to need more flexible infrastructure and, and control over their financial products at some point? 
Um, I, I think if, if anything, actually, this starts to shore up some of that, if I'm honest with you, because actually, I think this this sort of moves a little bit away from people just using, I mean, actually, look, we do this all the time, right? We'll use prepaid cards to test a proposition because you never really know until you put it in the hands of a consumer whether they they actually like or not the thing that you do. And and actually, this sort of stabilizes some of those elements, particularly in the US market. But do you know, I was surprised that Gal- Galileo have been along for 20 years now like that the, it really only feels like in the last maybe two and a half three years that the company have, have really sort of taken off so it, it makes me sort of wonder what they've been doing for the other uh, 17 years but um so yeah i think it's an interesting move i think again this one similar to the point that i was making a little bit earlier on with um with where solaris is i think particularly for non-financial services brands who are looking at branching out into financial services this type of thing allows them to you know dip their toe into the waters without worrying about regulation or worrying about actually spending a whole heap of money to uh, to do it and this was kind of my point in that i don't we've we've seen a lot of companies get to a certain point and then want to take things in house but for example you mentioned uber earlier simon uber has recently said they're going to have to stop working on their financial endeavor entirely because of coronavirus and having to reallocate and focus on things so obviously, there's still going to be a need for this product for a while, but we, we can even see through Uber's journey that they were basically working on the idea of taking it in-house. So hopefully, you never know how things are going to end up, but I don't know if there's real longevity in something like this, for example. Interesting to watch, isn't it? I mean, Galileo were behind the scenes, I think, for both uh, Varro and Chime. Uh, and as a result, both of them now are applying for charters. Now they've reached a certain size and maybe may do the same as, as Revolut and Monzo. So that's going to be interesting to see. I think Galileo are behind Monzo's US play as well, aren't they? Is that is that right? But um, According to the website, they are, yes. Every time I hear any news about these guys, I'm singing Queen songs for days. Like, uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, it's it, it just uh, it makes it very difficult to really focus. But um, it's who's magnifique. not thinking of that Queen song right now? I know. <laughs> Uh, Joe, I, I think I'm going to just come to you for the last word on this. I mean, um, that this whole space for fintechs has become increasingly one where there's a different set of suppliers. But is it is it just for fintechs? Is it just for big techs? Or can the banks be using some of this stuff too? I think that's so true. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so it's there's there's with technology like this, uh, the opportunity, like David says, to for others outside of the space to come into it, but also the other way around, the big players, the incumbent banks, to use that sort of technology without with, with uh, to play around with ideas, get to market really quickly, uh, test it, and if it doesn't fail, if it doesn't work, uh, they they don't have too much reputational damage or, or things like that, or get into a different geography quite quickly. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely useful for, for for the banks as well. And David, we've found that it's often quicker and cheaper than than sort of doing big integration work to, to kind of do some of this stuff. Um, what do you say the the sort of the lessons learned are from from doing it? And and do you think people are trying to get closer to the customer by testing things faster and cheaper? And and, and is that method proven now, or does it still have some some way to go to prove itself? I think it's definitely proven. I mean, it's it's been proven in other industries for a long time, and actually, it's 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 not new. It's just new to financial services, really. But um, I mean, we always say, right? People usually spend a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of money to find out nobody cares about the thing that they thought they cared about, and uh, you know, opportunities like this to get to market and get to consumers quicker. Um, you know, stops you really realizing that people have just lied to you in user testing and uh, the thing you thought was real was not real. So, I mean, uh, uh, options are always good. And um, this gives everybody another option. 
Uh, certainly de-risks investment on that side from a product development standpoint, doesn't it? Um, all right, we're going to move on as we're getting to the end of the show. And just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, there is just so much happening in fintech every week and we can't cover it at all. But these uh, demanded a shout out. So David, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's uh, it's getting all open banking-y down under. So um, down in uh, a story that we didn't have time to cover on Finextra is that Australia takes the first steps towards open banking. So Australia's consumers can now choose to share their banking data with third-party providers following the launch of open banking under the Consumer Data Right Act. So the watchdog in January delayed the introduction of open banking rules by six months amid concerns over testing and security of the new provisions for account data sharing. The introduction of the new data sharing regime has got off to a bit of a slow start, though, with just two accredited data recipients confirmed. Uh, The ACCC, probably should have worked on that acronym, uh, says a further 39 providers are undergoing the stringent security test required for accreditation. Uh, And aside from the top four banks, other authorized deposit-taking institutions are now expected to join over the coming year. I mean, this is a really interesting, look, the ripples of open banking from what has happened in the UK and and actually further afield is going to go and go and go and go. So it's um it's great to see this um this sort of landing on the Australian shores. Indeed, if if Sarah Kachansky was here, she'd also be at pains to remind us that they've probably gone a lot further than the UK and really built upon it in some quite interesting ways in terms of the data privacy side of it too. Uh, there's another story we didn't have time to cover from AltFi. This is TransferWise eyeing digital wealth with a new FCA license. So, because TransferWise, known for its FX and money transfer business, um, has started moving its 8 million customers to be able to access affordable funds um, and investment products from reputable providers, helping them move some of that cash that they have into investments. It pits the payment startup against, of course, Nutmeg, Moneybox, Wealthify, and Money Farm, but also the likes of Revolut. Um, TransferWise uh, investment product will be protected by FSCS up to a value of £85,000. However, as with all investments, their value can rise and fall. So questions remain about what their offerings actually going to look like, what funds they'll offer. Will it be uh, ETFs, low-cost trackers? Will it be something more substantial? Nobody really knows, but the announcement's there, and it seems like TransferWise are going beyond their beachhead into into more and more products. Uh, David? Yeah, so next up, we had a story that, uh, again, we didn't get to cover, unfortunately, over on Finextra. So this is TSB down days after boasting about online growth. So the UK's TSB bank is battling to recover its mobile and online banking service after an outage cut its services across the board. So the issue is a bit of an embarrassment for the bank, which only last week boasted about a surge in demand for customers using its mobile app and online banking. Uh, They were sort of putting out there that this was really due to the uh, outbreak of COVID. I mean, that's the surge, not the outage, I imagine. Uh, The average number of customers registering for the mobile banking since the UK lockdown began in late March has nearly trebled from just over 1,270 to almost 3,480 every day, uh, reaching over 4,000 on some of those days as well. In November last year, the bank pledged to become a bit more digitally focused, closing down some of those branches that they've got and investing $120 on mobile and online channels over the next three years. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I really like TSB as a brand and their heritage and their background and everything that they've gone. And actually, the positioning as a brand in the market is great. 
but they really need to shore up on the tax side of things now because there's there's only so much that um, customers will sort of put up with. The other thing that stands out from this one is like in a world where banks are spending billions, spending 120 million pounds doesn't feel like actually that significant to get you to where you need to get to, albeit only if you spend it like a bank. Uh, you know, I think if anything, the fintechs have actually shown 120 million pound goes a hell of a long way if you stand, spend it in the right way. So let's see what they need do next day, Simon. Absolutely. Um, story this week from Fenextra that we didn't have time to cover. And this is about uh, Zimbabwe moving to suspend mobile payments. And uh, this is uh, accusing a lot of mobile payments companies of sabotage to the economy. Um, all monetary and uh, phone-based transactions will be ceased. The stock exchange is also closed um, with banknotes banknotes scarce. Mobile payments account for more than 80% of all transactions in the Southern African country, according to central bank data. But the administration claims that the operators, particularly the hugely popular EcoCash, have been conspiring to sabotage the Zimbabwean dollar, which has lost nearly all of its value over the last year, causing rampant inflation. EcoCash initially told customers to continue using the service as normal, arguing that only the Zimbabwean central bank had the power to suspend its operations. The bank has since issued its own statement specifying a ban on mobile money agents and facilitating transactions, but not allowing merchants to receive payments for goods and services. Well, mobile payments is such a lifeline for folks in Zimbabwe. We we really hope this one um, sorts itself out. But it's time for a bit of a mood lightener before we go. This is our and finally story. Um, this is um, Monzo educate. Well, is it is it a mood lightener? Um, Monzo educating their followers on online puppy scams. At least it had a lot of pictures of very cute puppies. Um, so in a series of tweets with many pictures of cute puppies, many, many pictures of cute puppies, Monzo posted a thread warning that their community about the perils of buying pets online via social media, warning that the posts are often fake, it's often illegal, uh, only legal to buy puppies and kittens from licensed breeders or adopt them for the rescue. You might see listings on sites like Gumtree or Facebook, but there's um, apparently this scam where de- uh, fraudsters ask for a deposit for your pet to be, and then the seller goes quiet and you never hear from them again. So, um, Wow. Um, is this a good message for a bank to put out? I mean, Emily, what did you think when you saw this? Was Does this just um, yay puppies or like uh, a good, helpful message? I mean, I think I've, I've been seeing quite a few of these kinds of tweets from Monzo's Twitter account recently where they're trying to inform more of their customers about the different kinds of scams that they can encounter online. Puppy scams is very niche, I'll admit. <laughs> um, but I'm sure some of their customers must have faced it. And I know they're really uh, trying to bolster their financial crime division as well so the fact that they're trying to put these this information out there's great um whether or not it's just you know a twitter thread full of puppy pictures so that they can you know get a few more likes and more follows i mean we'll see but Mm, there's definitely that risk i mean joe fraud and risk is is a real issue here if puppies help educate people is that a bad thing no, it isn't. <laughs> it's very niche, like Emily said, because um, they could they could go out there. We hear these stories all the time, not just with puppies, but uh, I've been using one with camper vans, similar story uh, that gets stolen. So <clears throat> I think anything that will educate the public and just, just generate a bit more awareness around the risk of this thing um, is probably a good thing. And this is a different the difference potentially between incumbent banks and fintechs, as they go out, the fintech, they are going out there and generating the trust in their brand that, that, that it goes beyond just financial services, but they're helping you prevent sort of this type of problems as well. 
it's interesting. I wonder if they saw this in their data, Natalie, because pet adoptions and sales have skyrocketed since lockdown. So um, I wonder if it was data-driven or not. Do you think that there's there's behavior changes behind this potentially? I think if it had been data-driven, uh, they would have focused on the bigger problem in the UK market, which is uh, when, you know, the, the app scams. So when you're, tra- uh, you know, you're transferring from one account to the other and you put in the wrong account or you've been told the wrong account number and you're transferring the money to somebody in China instead of uh, the person that you meant to, you know, that's something that the UK industry is trying to address right now. And that's a really huge and big problem. So um, now I think this was, um, you know, lighthearted, uh, uh, directional, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, fraudsters are out there and you need to be aware. David, do we need more puppy content on our, on our media generally? Is that what we're learning from this? I'm not sure you can ever have too many puppy pictures, I'll be honest with you. And if you take nothing from this episode, I think you should take that. So uh, you heard it here first, fintech and puppies. Um, we want more puppies. We, de- we demand them. Um, bring bring us this. It's, it's what we need in these lockdown times. Um, Alrighty, uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Natalie? Uh, curve.com. Brilliant. And Joe? Mytechsystems.com. Or find me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. And Emily? So you can read all my stories on com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole. Fantastic. And David? Uh, you can find me over on LinkedIn. Uh, and you find me on LinkedIn as well. Just look up Simon Taylor or at SY Taylor on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, do remember to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show too. Uh, speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech and isn't listening to the show, we'll pass along the show. Um, make sure they know about it. Um, and if you have any suggestions or feedback, do remember to find us on social or just email podcast at 11 But that's it for now. Goodbye. <laughs>